You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're thrilled today to again welcome Dr. Deborah Burks here for the podcast. She was last with us April 12th of 2021 for a very dramatic podcast. We'll talk about that a little bit, but welcome, Deborah, and thank you so much, and congratulations on publication of Silent Invasion, the untold story of the Trump administration, COVID-19, and preventing the next pandemic before it's too late. That's a mouthful, but it's a it's a big and powerful book, and we'll be talking about it. So congratulations, and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Steve. Happy to be with you. Deborah's known to many Americans for her role as the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, uh, occupied that job during the Trump administration beginning March 2nd of 2020. So it was at that critical, one of those really critical early moments. And she stayed in that role until January 19th of 2021 for a total of, I counted it up, 323 days. Um, for four decades, Deborah's been a leading immunologist and global HIV AIDS expert and leader. In April of 2014, President Obama named her as ambassador at large and U.S. global AIDS coordinator with responsibilities in managing the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. Prior to that, served nine years at CDC managing the HIV program, which is a huge program at CDC. Uh, She's a career military civil servant, retired at rank of colonel. She directed in her tenure in the military, the U.S. military HIV research program at Walter Reed and currently is a senior fellow George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome, Deborah. I'm going to start with a big question, which has to do with what's the story that jumps out when you read this book? And I'm just going to give you a quick recap on what I take away as sort of the main storyline. And you tell me if I got it right and what this means. It seems to me that you, you're, you're saying you arrived reluctantly in the midst of this crisis. You had spent a lot of your time managing PEPFAR, trying to stay out of harm's way and not be too visible and protect the PEPFAR program. Now you come in the last year in the midst of a crisis as an outsider to the inside team, Trump administration, perhaps a bit politically not ready or ready for some of the complexities within this behemoth and this dysfunctional White House. Uh, you came in in the first In your first tenure, for the first five and a half weeks, you had significant influence. You had access. You had an ability to make an argument based on data. You were able to contribute substantially in getting the first 15 and then 30-day total, 45-day of the uh, lockdown, in effect, to try and stop the spread in that period. But from that point forward, after that 45-day period, things got bumpy. Economists began arguing that oh, this is a flu-like thing and the projections on deaths will be 26,000 versus projections that you were making, which was 100 to 240,000. In reality, in the course of the year, I think it was about 330,000. You had these big moments that lingered in people's memory, the April 23rd episode in which the president was talking to a DHS scientist, ignoring you and making claims about use of disinfectants and sterilizing light which was a bit of weird science on a grand global stage. You saw your press availability, national press availability curtailed, but allowed to talk to local press and allowed to travel 
for two long stints engaging with 44 governors, state and local leaders, 30 universities, really trying to take the show on the road with the support of the vice president, filing, I think, 310 reports to the White House on what you were learning and what you were seeing. In August, Scott Atlas appears representing a new warp internally, and, and, and you spent a lot of time trying to contain him and prevent him from bringing this herd immunity roadshow inside the White House, and you were to some degree successful. You did issue a statement, a very strong statement of projected widespread uh, of the virus in August, I think August 10, CNN, that provoked a very harsh condemnation from Trump. So you lived through this period. You chose, you chose to stick with it. You were uh, subject to a lot of manipulation and marginalization. As I read the account, you're saying, look, this was a matter of honor and ethics and mission and commitment, and you decided not to resign. Uh, and you knew that there were ethical, ethical and difficult moral issues involved in this. It did turn into a, a catastrophe, and it's something that people will continue to, to look at. It, it, the the band of doctors, the four doctors that you talk about, have their own compact of staying together. That kind of sounded to me like Chernobyl, in a way, the sort of storyline of Chernobyl. While the political leadership is wreaking havoc, the docs have their own kind of pact of uh, how they will hang together or, or, or not hang together. Um, did I get this right? Am I summarizing correctly? Yeah, I, you know, except I think it goes into some of the solutions that I saw really working on the ground. I think that was the one piece I brought to the White House that wasn't there is a real understanding of how you battle pandemics and how you change them from the ground up by working with community as well as government. I think the U.S. had not really had that kind of pandemic, like we had been battling with HIV, TB, and malaria. And so it was really that kind of common sense, data-driven approach um, that I was able to bring into the White House. I think the other piece that just is a little bit off is that first 100 to 240,000, that was only for that first surge. It was only about containing that first surge. At that time, I couldn't really make projections past the six to eight week time period because um, I was using uh, mathematical models based on what I was seeing in Europe. That was really important to me. I knew from the beginning that the, the winter would be worse. And I, I think the four doctors, including myself, also believed that very strongly. And so put a lot of effort in getting ready for the fall. But yes, I think the only other piece that's missing um, is it obviously goes through the first year of a little bit longer than the first year, 13 months of the Biden administration to really talk about what we're getting right and what we continue to get wrong. Now, your book, when I was reading the book, I was thinking, and, 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 and there were some very nice conversations you had with Andy Slavitt on In the Bubble and with Yasmin Abu Taleb from the Washington Post Live and a few favorable and thoughtful reviews, I began, I was trying to think, okay, what sets this book apart from the many other very good books that have been published by Lawrence Wright, Tom Wright, Scott Gottlieb, Andy Slavitt, Yasmin and Damian Panetta. It seems to me what, you, what you've done is, is you bring an inside account with much more detail than we've had. You bring a longer time frame, so you are now critiquing the Biden administration and CDC. You have a particular intellectual approach, which is this silent invasion 
preoccupation with what does this silent invasion mean and also your sacred trinity about the net. Keep your eye on testing, masking, and limiting size of gatherings, and particularly in acute periods. And then you took your show on the road, right? You, you went to 44 state capitals and met with governors and local leaders, and you met with 30 universities, and you filed detailed reports. So you were seeing a slice of reality that those of us who were not there were not necessarily seeing very well. So... Do those four things capture pretty well this? And let's talk about them. What did it mean to be bringing an insider perspective in your view? Well, I think they were there. The bigger piece of that in my mind was unless you know what people were really doing and what was really happening, you can't really understand what went wrong and what went right and work from that perspective. And that results in people making the same mistakes over and over again. So I really felt compelled to write the book because I think a lot in part of our doctor's pack, um, Steve and Bob and I in particular decided we weren't going to fight back. We couldn't spend our effort in pointing out instances when the media got it wrong and try to fix that in real time because we were really focused on what we needed to do to really save as many Americans as possible. And so a lot of what was in the other books, and rightly so, covered it primarily from what was in the media. But I wanted people to know that because we weren't going out to the media, none of us were leakers, the media really didn't have a good sense of what was happening behind the scenes. And I think what was happening behind the scenes is really crucial in pandemic preparedness. And that's what I wanted people to take home from the book is that our view of pandemic preparedness was really off and we prepared for the wrong kind of pandemic. And I think we also prepared in a very federal government isolated way where we really didn't bring the private sector to the table. And in the end, the private sector was willing to rearrange all of their supply chains based on equity and need. And to me, that was really important. And that will be important, that's important now, that's important in the next pandemic, it's important now with Paxlovid that we distribute Paxlovid not based on population, but based on need and use it in a data-driven way, going state by state, county by county, and seeing where those hospitalizations and deaths were with the last surge. These surges are predictable. The variants are predictable. We knew that from the beginning. And it's like every time there's a new surge, people discover it as, a, as something that is new. It's not new. It was predictable from the beginning. This is what RNA viruses do. And they do that even more when there's partial immunity. Explain what you mean by silent invasion. What does that really mean? And why are we, why do we continue to trip up in grasping and acting upon that? So silent invasion, really, of course, I'm a big sci-fi person. So I wanted a name that kind of also told that a little bit about my personality, but science invasion was really about changing our view on viral diseases and diseases in general and requiring definitive laboratory diagnosis. I will tell you, I was shocked when I came back to the domestic United States after working globally for over 20 years to find out, whereas we had brought definitive laboratory diagnosis 
to Africa so that when a child comes in, we know if that child has HIV, TB, or malaria. We definitively know in that moment so that that child or that mom or that dad or their grandparents can be treated in that moment. I come home to a United States that's in the 20th century defining illness by syndromes not by definitive laboratory diagnosis. So when you are defining pandemics by syndromes, anything that looks like what you already have, which of course most diseases look like each other in some way, then you totally miss the invasion of that organism. And so whereas I was pushing Africa to test in January and February so they could see it coming, in the U.S., we were relying on syndromes and symptoms. And I think um, if nothing else, we have to move to a place where CMS requires laboratory diagnosis of all community-acquired infectious diseases, or they can't code it at that. So if we had been definitively diagnosing flu for the last 30 years, we would have known and we would have seen this virus coming. And so that's really core, I think, is to use 21st century technology in our pandemic preparedness planning. Now, I took to understand as I was reading your book that by silent invasion, you're also saying that there was a unwillingness until very late to admit waning immunity uh, and the power of waning immunity and the fact that there was silent transmission by people who were fully vaccinated, who were asymptomatic but becoming infected and becoming major drivers, particularly in the southern U.S. And so you had an, a silent invasion that over time was one that defied our basic understanding of what was going on, where people felt that vaccinations were going to give protections that they didn't give, and they might be more permanent than anybody should suppose. So explain this a bit. Why was it so difficult to get around this idea that asymptomatic was terribly, terribly important to be measuring asymptomatic uh, infection, but we were very slow and loath to do that. And then we were very slow and loath to admit and explain to Americans what it meant to have waning immunity and have vaccinated people become silent transmitters asymptomatically. Thank you, Steve. That was a really important insight, and it's part of the reason why this was so important to me to get this information out. Because if you're going to say that you follow the science and the data, you actually have to collect the data. You have a moral obligation to get that data in real time and analyze it in real time and allow it to teach you, to allow you to move past your own personal perceptions and assumptions. And so it was clear to me in December when that second surge hit South Africa that natural infection did not lead to long-lived natural immunity and protection from reinfection. So once you saw that, that natural infection, unlike measles, mumps, and rubella, that natural infection did not produce long-lived immunity, you knew in that moment that the vaccines would not. And remember, the vaccines were never studied to do that anyway. So that's what always confounded me, because I had briefed the White House multiple times on the difference between protection from disease and protection from infection. And I said to them multiple times, this vaccine is only being studied for protection against disease, not infection. We didn't test 
participants in the trial on a regular basis to see if they were asymptomatically and mildly infected. And they only tested people with symptoms. And so once you do that and you realize that's just an age differential, what we did with vaccination is we converted the majority of the United States to a place where many people now had such mild disease that they did not pick it up as a COVID infection and that they then spread it to their vulnerable family members. And that surge in the summer of 2021 was the most deadly summer surge that we had experienced. In the summer of 2020, we lost about 100,000 Americans. In the summer of 2021, we lost 135,000 Americans. And the reason it was worse is because everybody let down their guard, believing that they had become invincible invincible for both disease and infection. And we also didn't warn the American people that a large number of individuals, particularly the, what I would like to call very elderly, um, people over 80, probably a significant number of them because of their age or their immune system, don't even mount a protective immune response against severe disease. And you could see that in the data of the summer of 2021, you could see rising number of hospitalizations in fully vaccinated individuals. And that's when all of my alarm bells went off. Of course, I started, I've been writing um, to people inside the administration since February of 2021, but I also was contacting um, people I knew in the media and saying, you really have to warn Americans. And what people came back to me and said is no one wants to discourage people against vaccination. And I was like, you don't understand if you don't give the American public the full truth, and there's great value in these vaccines for their protection against severe disease and death, if you don't tell them the truth, they're never going to trust public health officials again. And so that's, that's what I really worry will come out of this, this, this sense that you don't tell people everything that you know for fear that the decisions will not be made in your quote favor, in your public health favor. But I have found from battling pandemics, the more transparent, the more honest, the more straightforward you are, the more likelihood that people will adopt and adapt to the behaviors and they adapt and adopt to the vaccines that you want to see. Well, there's a couple of pretty sharp sort of indictments that you make of CDC and others in the book around this question of being honest and forthcoming with the American public or just making bad calls, right? This is not necessarily in a chronological order, but you take issue with the May 13th, 2021 guidance that basically said, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. You equated that to, to President Trump's own inclinations to tell people, don't worry, the risk is low, you can let your guard down. And I thought that was an, a very interesting sort of parallel comparison you're saying that there was a very great reluctance to be completely honest about what vaccines can and cannot do, and that waning immunity and silent transmitters of people who are vaccinated but asymptomatic is a real threat. That was a very sharp and very loud. You were saying no one was listening or learning in rural, rural communities, that that was a huge gap in trying to understand how people were making decisions how they were choosing to run their lives when they had a weak health system, they had limited access or costly access. You said that in July of 2021, I think this is repeating something that you've been talking about, that immunity was waning as Delta was arriving, but we weren't telling people, watch out, like this is gonna be much bigger in a waning immunity setting. And 
later when people were encouraged to to gather for holidays that was in in error as well that the thanksgiving gatherings and the holiday gatherings contributed to the omicron surge those are pretty tough analyses of the way in which cdc carried forward in making errors in guidance and i assume that you know you see this as a form of continuity of of functions that from trump to biden yeah i think the american people can see clearly that we haven't done well in any of these surges. In fact, in the Delta and Omicron surges, we suffered about 65% more fatalities than our European colleagues. We were on par with our European colleagues all through 2020. I mean, we none of us had really superb countermeasures and we were all running in about the same case fatality rates. That dramatically changed with those over 70 in um, both the summer Delta surge and the Omicron surge. And I think it gave people a false sense of security. Let me just be very clear. When test positivity rises in the youngest age groups, it moves up through the population into the older age groups and 100% of the time eventually gets to vulnerable people in that community. So when you hear people say it on television, oh, cases are rising, but hospitalizations aren't, that's when you should be acting because community spread it eventually gets to vulnerable Americans if you don't take precautions. And there are precautions and things that we can do today. We have all the tools to save probably 90 to 95% of Americans. We're just not using them effectively. And I think it's clear that there's a problem with our federal institutions and our data collection and our real-time data analysis to get the information to people who need it the most as fast as they need it. It's a little bit like, um, Steve, if we had tackled the Southern HIV pandemic that were in isolated specific counties that were having much higher rates of um, newly acquired HIV. And we said to the public, don't worry, we've put PrEP and HIV drugs in your pharmacy, just go there and get them. And we thought that that was enough to ensure that people had the tools that they needed and the information that they needed. No, we knew you had to work within the communities with opinion leaders to ensure that the information that everyone needed to empower their decision-making had that information. Yet today we just say, oh, we put Paxlovid in pharmacies. Well, that, <laughs> for one thing, many rural areas are far away from any pharmacies. Secondly, there's no primary care physicians there. So how exactly are those people going to know to get tested, know to get to that pharmacy? You can't do it that way. You've got to get into the churches. You've got to get into the Farmers Association. You've got to show why it's important that they test and get immediate access to Paxlovid. They have to be able to call a hotline and have that fed Paxlovid FedEx to them. They've been getting their health care from emergency rooms 100 to 200 miles away for more than a decade. And indeed, if you look at the rate of fatalities in the South and up through Appalachia since 2010, the rates have been remarkably higher than urban areas. Yet we just chart the information and we don't respond. Yeah. And so that's what really the book is. It's a call to action to say, find our issues, stop just measuring them, 
but find the solutions that are there, take them to scale and treat every hospitalization from COVID and every death as a failure of your programming and hold yourself accountable to that. That's what we did with HIV. That's how we changed the course of the pandemic in Sub-Saharan Africa, and we didn't have a vaccine. So all of this is doable, but you gotta get on the ground and you have to use data in real time and present it to the American people in an understandable way so that they can take the actions that they need to save their lives. But they have to have access, and we have huge barriers to access in rural counties. You know, I, I do think that one of the most important contributions of this book grew out of the travels, which shouldn't be a big surprise, right? You spent seven months on the road talking to people and, and seeing and engaging with rural communities and others. And so talking in very candid and sharp terms about the deficiencies and the lack of understanding, lack of presence, lack of capacity, lack of understanding, like lack of listening and empathy. I think that's a very powerful point. I want to turn to testing here for a moment. When I read the Scott Atlas Shrugged chapter, I, I must say I, I found it, you kind of wanted to take a shower after reading that chapter because the behavior of the president, his inner circle, and Scott Atlas was all just this kind of oozing, creepy behavior pattern. And much of it centered around, okay, we're in an electoral cycle. We want to convince people that things aren't out of control. You made this unfortunate statement on CNN August 10th saying, indeed, it is out of control. But the narrative had to fit the electoral calendar. And the narrative got translated into warped guidance around testing. And that got jammed through Brett Garrard, got jammed through CDC. It's, you know, you were ultimately powerless to stop that. And you read that and you think, this is a bit of a tragedy. It's a very creepy story. But then again, the American people, I think overwhelmingly Biden's, a very significant portion of Biden's victory ultimately was the American people being fearful that things were indeed out of control and they were not going to permit uh, Trump to continue in power because they understood how crazy this was. Now, you then move forward into the Biden administration and testing goes up to 2 million a day, drops to 300,000, and there's this like walk away from it until late last fall when there was a course correction and Tom Inglesby came in. And I think we were back to a much better position. But nonetheless, as you point out, the performance on testing in much of the Biden administration was not much better. It may have been worse than some of what happened. Talk a little bit about why it is that we had this crazy drama surrounding testing, most elemental factor here, starting with CDC's stumbles, but greatly magnifying when Atlas shows up on the scene and is able to spread a doctrine, a false doctrine of herd immunity and no need to test to the president who wanted to hear that. His buddies wanted to hear that and you didn't want to, but you couldn't do anything about it. But then the problem persisted. Yeah, so, you know, this is why I wanted people to really see what happened. So here's the president and Scott Atlas um, and Scott Atlas rewriting the CDC guidance. And all of that is happening at the same time we're getting billions of dollars to expand testing. So, you know, the words always were in opposite to the action. In some cases, I think over the last year, we've had great words, but not the urgency of action. And I think that's still a huge problem. A slogan is not a program. 
Um, and it's not enough to say these things. You have to do the hard work on the ground of making sure that it's working and fixing all of the issues that arise. And I think that still exists in testing. I think sending tests to households is fine, but what we really want is the critical households that need the test to have the test and use the test and know when to use them and how to use them. And what we learned in Sub-Saharan Africa is about 15% of the people use 90% of the tests because we have a group that's very worried about COVID, but they're already taking precautions and you're really worried about the 65-year-olds who still live long distances from any access to healthcare, have no primary care, have done nothing but healthcare through emergency rooms, and will come too late to even make Paxlovid available. So in the United States, we know where every single Medicaid and Medicare person lives. They're all basically registered. So instead of making tests free to the general public, send 10 to 12 tests to every household over 65 with clear instructions that when you see cases rising in your community, test weekly. As soon as you're positive, call this toll-free number. You'll be immediately given access to telehealth and you'll be shipped Paxlovid. That is the only way to breach this barrier while we work on rebuilding healthcare for the most marginalized groups in rural America. I am not surprised that COVID deaths are higher in rural America because cancer deaths are higher in rural America, cardiovascular deaths are higher in rural America, stroke deaths are higher in rural America. All of their deaths are higher in rural America because they don't have the same access to healthcare. And so I guess my biggest indictment to the federal agencies is we have been mapping this problem for decades. Obesity, hypertension, diabetes, lack of access in rural communities, poor, extraordinarily poor health care at our tribal nations, worse than anything that I built in Africa still exists in this country in our tribal nations. Yet we map it and we publish reports on it and we don't fix it. And I think if we had taken that kind of sit back and wait attitude towards HIV, TB and malaria, pandemics would still be raging at an extraordinary level across the globe. You can't just watch this and, and treat it like a historic interest where you publish a paper and don't act. I think that's the biggest indictment on our agencies is we've measured it, we haven't fixed it. One of my impressions reading this book and, and reading over the reviews and your engagement with Yasmin Abdutaleb and Andy Slavin and others is that the judgment of you in this period in serving President Trump has softened over time. There's less anger, cynicism, rage, I think, in the air about this. And I think people are more open to the narrative of honorable victim versus ambitious, naive enabler. You know, they... and You've made the case that this was a matter of honor and ethics and mission and loyalty to the mission. You've made the case you were not alone. You were with the three other docs in operating in this way. You've admitted in this book some mistakes, and so there's been some introspection here. But time has also put some distance and also brought in the Biden experience, which has been, as you've pointed out, not free of major difficulties and mistakes. And so the picture looks different from this standpoint. Now, the last time we spoke was right after you had 
the, the Sanjay Gupta documentary had aired last week of March of last year, and President Trump came roaring out of the dock uh, the next day and attacked you uh, quite viciously. And that, of course, triggered many of the more extremist elements who respond to his sort of calls to action to step up, step up their own attacks upon you and threatening your life and the like. And he, a few days later, attacked Tony Fauci in much the same fashion. This time around, it seems like perhaps there's a different response. We, up until today, there had been no response. Over the weekend, there was the Washington Post review. The New York Times review was rerun. Tell us, what was Trump's reaction this time around? What was his response and how do you interpret that response? It's only a one year gap in, in the pattern. So I'm trying to understand why wouldn't he come be full throated in his condemnation of you? His playbook has not changed. He's turned the big lie. He's turned his campaign prowess. Everything is is exercising these same tactics that he believes are fundamental to his political future. Uh, why hasn't he? And so tell us a bit about what he said today, but also your interpretation. Well, you know, just to put it into perspective, because I think a lot of people didn't know my background and, and didn't. So I, I don't know if it's softening. I, I think I didn't put anything in the book that isn't, um, you know, I'm very data driven. So there's emails to support the evidence base for everything that's in that book. Those of people who know me know I'm very data driven and I'm very fact based. And so I think the book is very fact-based. It was clear what President Trump did poorly, and it was clear what the agencies did poorly. It was clear what we as a task force and me personally did poorly. It clearly showed the president was saying one thing, we were doing something very different. So if people are, are confused about why I stayed, if they saw what we were putting together, creating the databases, creating the tools to realign our entire supply chain to make sure that the drugs we had got to the right hospitals to the patients that they needed it. And so there was the rhetoric and then there was the actions. And so that was always confounding to me, but that was very common in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. I've worked with presidents and prime ministers for decades. They would often say one thing and allow us to program and do what was right to ensure that their citizens could not only survive, but thrive despite HIV. So that I was, I was fairly used to that. Um, so this didn't seem unusual in that a political figure would be saying this, but we would be doing what was right from a public health standpoint. But you standpoint. were, I mean, you did admit in the book that with the exception of that five and a half week interval at the beginning, you had a title, but you were you were pushed out of, of, of really being what that title was supposed to be. At the president's level, but as yeah. far as driving Defense Production Act, as far as working with every hospital, as far as doing what was needed to save the American people at that federal level, that was happening. And so yes. when all this negative stuff is being said about testing, we got well over one and a half million tests a day by the December, January of 2021 timeframe. So, you know, we were driving a response. It wasn't in the president's rhetoric. And so okay. I think, you know, if I could create the perfect situation, it would be 
right words, right actions. And we still can't seem to get those two pieces to yeah. come together in a response that saves American lives. So say say a few words about what Trump said today about your book. So I haven't seen it myself, but someone sent it to me that he said, well, there was one truthful thing in his statement. It said, um, Debbie Burks does not have a lot of dresses, and that is true. Um, I was a public servant for 40 years, military, and then 11 years um, as a public servant. So I did not have the salary to have lots of dresses. So she's had not a lot of dresses, lots of scarves. It's absolutely true. All the scarves were, most of the scarves were secondhand from my colleague in New York who sent them to me that were from auction for housing works, really benefiting youth in the city that need additional housing support. And so it went on to say um, about the Thanksgiving gathering. And I just to, that, of course, was fake then. It's fake now. I didn't drive a long distance and gather my family together. I was with the household that I was living with since July. I re I had to re-engage in that household. My parents at that time were 91 and 95, and my, my daughter was six months pregnant with her third child. So I had to provide health and support for both, for that household, for cooking and other things. There was no Thanksgiving gathering. Um, it was the same dinner size that we had every night um, that I cooked for them. And, you know, we did, my husband and I were recently married right before the pandemic hit and we were looking for a house where we could all fit as a, as a family together post the pandemic. And we found one. So we drove that 130 miles with my immediate household wasn't a long distance. We didn't stop anywhere. We took all our food with us because I hadn't been to the house and I wanted to make sure that it was good. We had already bought this place and it was fine. So, you know, it's interesting to me because many people in Washington have second homes. Obviously, people were going to their second home throughout the pandemic. So do you think that this is, is this sudden sort of coming out and attacking you in this rather ridiculous smear tactic. Is this emanating from him and his inner circle because they are fearful of the narrative and the picture that you have presented of his behavior? Which is, as you said, you were very factual around this. And frankly, when you read this book, Trump looks worse than he looks in some of the other books, which weren't on the inside, describing with detail the creepiness of what was happening. You know, there's a lot of Trump books out there. This was never meant to be a got you Trump book. This was yeah. a meant to be for the American people what we need to do to fix this <laughs> because we can't yeah. continue this way. Surges are predictable, variants are predictable. We have the tools to ensure Americans can survive and thrive. We just need to use them. That's what compelled me to write the book. Certainly, I had to speak about what was happening in the White House. That was important because that's part of pandemic preparedness and what we need to do in the future. I'm not sure that he or is in his circle has read the book. Um, I think if he read the book, he would see that I talked about therapeutics and I talked about vaccines and I talked about his important role in that in designing this warp speed and critically calling up CEOs and say, go faster. There's two ways to look at that, of course, but it always does help when the president calls people and says, go faster, because it just, there's a way to design clinical trials that take this long, and there's a way to design clinical trials that take that long, and they're just as good, and they're just as safe, 
And they did a lot of work to make sure that they were this long. And I think he brought vaccines to market probably in half the time that people predicted when I arrived in March. But I also had to talk about the things that went poorly because when you don't have a lot of tools, the most important thing is honesty, transparency, and communication with the American people. And I think he failed on that. So is it disappointing or shocking to me that the president um, took this moment to say bad things about me again. The only thing that I care about is that the American people know that there are solutions out there that still my immediate household, all nine of us, that have to remain COVID negative despite working outside the house, we're still all COVID negative. We don't have some weird genetic profile. We're, we've got sons-in-laws that live together. Um, and I have my husband. It takes diligence. And I admit that. It does. But you can work you can socialize, the core is testing. And that's why when I just feel like we still are not empowering the American people to use testing in an effective way so that they can protect their family and their vulnerable family members. There's a way to do it. There's a clear way forward. I just want us to use 21st century tools in a real life way so that people can get what they need to survive. Thank you. Just in closing, I mean, the your book appeared, has come to people's attention at about the same moment in which we crossed the one million deaths, one million Americans lost to this pandemic, which, as you point out, exceeds by enormous margin proportional losses in other advanced economies that you'd think we would be at least on par with. And our performance is tragic and catastrophic. What were your thoughts when we crossed that, that line? the one million. That we're still not using the tools that we have. The UK was testing at four times our rate and people could go anywhere and get a test, take it home, you know, use it in a week before they went to visit their grandmother. I mean, we just, we're just not using the science and technology and data that we have. And so it's very disappointing to me. The fact that we continue to have the highest rate of hospitalization in individuals over 70, which are the most immunized group, tell me that there's still gaps there, significant structural gaps for which we have additional tools like EvoShield. We could be using that for people who didn't develop an immune response or even a response to the boosters. So there's all of these tools that can be used in a very logical manner. We've lost 175,000 people just since January 1st of 2022. If we don't change what we're doing in the rural counties across the South as they move indoors when it gets hot, and the virus spreads across the South. If we don't change and utilize our tools in a more effective way, we will have a huge number of fatalities again this summer. And again, we have the data to show where our gaps are, we're just not addressing them. And again, a slogan of test and treat is a wonderful concept, but it means nothing if it's not executed in a way that all Americans can take advantage of it. And if you live in an urban area, you can take advantage of it. If you live in, a, in Elko, Nevada, it's probably difficult for you to get Paxlovid and to get tests. So I just feel like we're still not meeting Americans where they are so that everyone can survive. So what gives you the greatest hope and optimism in this moment, Deborah? We ask everyone at the conclusion. That we have the tools. And I'm just so hopeful that we change 
and do what's right with public health. And people forget that public health has public in it. And if we talk to the public and work with the public and meet them where they are, they will use these tools effectively and we will have very different outcomes than we have had for the last two years. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book and thanks for spending the time with us today, Deborah. Thank you, Steve. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Laurel Vibazon and managed by Claire Dannenbaum. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.